Ecclesiastes, middle of your Bible. Um, this last Christmas break, I have an 11-year-old son, Elijah. And so he and his cousin, who looks just like his, they look like twins. I mess them up. I'm like, Elijah, I mean, Ollie. They decided that they were gonna go get a job. And they're gonna go work and make some money. So they were about ready to set out. And I said, listen, if you're gonna show up at somebody's door and you're gonna ask to work at their house, you should look like you're ready to work. So take off the shorts, put on some jeans, let's outfit you. And he has this little trailer that he could pull with his quad. We made a little rack for it. We put some rakes on it, a shovel, um, put in a, a blower, uh, had hard hats, you know, the whole thing, set you up. You're gonna show up looking like you're ready to work. So like, okay, so they leave. Over the next couple days, he ended up making 70 bucks, right? But when he made his 70 bucks, I came home after this service and I walked into my house and I sat down and he came just, he was all swole up, just came like, <laughs> reached into his pocket, pulled out the $70, put it right in front of my face. <laughs> Look at that dad, <laughs> right? <laughs> now, why did he do that? Because work is more than just money, isn't it? There's all these intangibles to it. So he's like, look at that, dad. Guess what I said? Let's talk tool rental now, okay? <laughs> Use my tools, my gas. Let's talk tool rental. This is business 101, buddy. <laughs> no, I said, good job, man. Well done. That's what he wanted to hear. He needed that in addition. And he took that same wad to all of his sisters. Look, look, look. To, the, to his mom, you know, because there's more to work than just money. There's these things that are, that are very intrinsic to work, like recognition and significance and contribution and purpose that are, they're very, very, very important in all of us, okay? So here's where we've been. We have watched Solomon deconstruct a bunch of things that we would say, hey, that would bring life or joy or purpose. And he's deconstructed them and said, they don't. So in chapters one and two, he's gone academic, studied, learned, it didn't do it. He went partying, he worked at partying, worked it. Then it was achievement, then it was money, and it was all this stuff. So he has toiled and worked for two chapters. In verse 18 of chapter two, here's what he does. He turns around, and however that long that took, we don't know, maybe 25 years, he turns around, crosses his arms, and says, how did that do? When I look back on how hard I worked, what did it do for me? And that's what we're gonna look at today. So notice Ecclesiastes 2, verse 18. Solomon deconstructing work now. Verse 18, I hated all my work. <laughs> He's pretty choice with words. Someone just found their life verse. Underline that one, honey. <laughs> in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Then skip ahead to chapter four, verse four. 
Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Solomon, and I just read a few. He's got a bunch more on work. What does Solomon think about work? Work is a four-letter word is what he would say, right? Now, before we kind of go into why he thinks that, if he's right, um, is work part of the curse? Is it, hey, you guys sinned and you blew it, so now you're cursed to work? No, right? The curse comes in Genesis 3. If you just back up to Genesis 2, which is when things are right and good and pure and awesome, Here's what happens. God makes man, right? Forms him out of the dirt. Verse three, breathes into him. He is a divine dirt bag. We saw that last week. So there he is. And then puts him in a garden, great place that God had created for him. And then he says this in verse 15. This is your garden. Work it and keep it. Maintain what I've already done and start to expand it. Work it, go out, do more. Take all the raw stuff that I've given you in this garden and work and expand, right? Before the curse. And then a couple of verses later, he gets a wife. I think the order there is very, very important. Young men, notice the order. The man got a job and then he got a woman. I tell young men, girls find jobs sexy. I say this now as well, dads do too. I totally find them (laughs) work, right? So you see, Prior to the fall, prior to problems, here's what you see. God's plan A is, man, you're going to have a job. You're going to work. You're going to be creative. You're going to expand. That's what you're going to do. And I think there's a lot of reasons why. One of them is this. I think the most dangerous creature on earth is not an anaconda or a mama grizzly robbed of her cubs. I think the most dangerous creature on earth is a bored man. More damage has been done to our earth because of bored men than anything else. So God says, you're gonna have this work and this job and this thing that's gonna keep you occupied and busy and going for it, right? So you've got jobs in the beginning. And I would say this, in Genesis one and two, God would say, work is good. Work is good. But now you've got Solomon, a long time later, Solomon saying, work is bad. Now, why did it get that way? Well, let's try to look at what happens here. So he says this about work. Chapter two, verses 22 and 23. He says this, work is sorrowful, work is vexation, and work keeps you up at night or it's stressful. Work is sorrowful or painful. Have you ever left work and just felt in pain? Maybe physically, you just worked your tail off and you are physically in pain your body hurts. Or maybe emotionally, spiritually, 
mentally, just beat down. And all you can think about is, when is the weekend? I'm exhausted. I need a day off. Work is sorrowful or painful. Number two, work is vexation. Or you could say it's sad. Have you ever been saddened by your job? Maybe it was corporate and this is year-end review. So someone gave you your year-end review and it was negative. And you think to yourself, I gave 2,000 hours of my life last year to that. And that's all they think about me. That's sad. Maybe a big project you're trying to accomplish failed. You couldn't meet the specifications. It was turned down. Maybe your big idea of how you're going to start a business and move. Maybe last year you went bankrupt and it's sad. Maybe it's the way your boss has been treating you and it feels sad. Maybe it's the way the coworkers blame you and you feel sad. There's lots of reasons why work can be sad. You have these ideas and they don't manifest. It's sad. And then lastly, he says, it keeps you up at night. The very thing that you need to replenish you because of the sadness and the broken downness and you can't even get it because at night you're so stressed out. The project isn't working. The business idea isn't working. Finances aren't there. And so you're up at night just running these things over in your mind because of work and you can't get the very thing that you need. Huh. Is Solomon right? Raise your hand if you've ever felt sad, stressed, or anxious at your job. Raise your hand. Okay, I please note, no staff from Edgewater raised their hand. <laughs> what other thing would we devote so much of our life to that brought pain, sadness, sorrow, vexation, stress? What would we do? If your home was sad, painful, and stressful, what would you do? You'd sell it. Right? If you live with roommates and your roommates are making you sad, stressed, and in pain, what would you do? Move, right? If you had a hobby that was causing you pain and stress and heartache, what would you do? Quit it. If you're a parent and your kids are stressing you and paining you and... <laughs> oh, sorry, nothing you can do there. 18 years, okay? <laughs> so Solomon... Seems to be hitting on something here, right? And then he goes further. Chapter four, verses seven and eight. He goes, as king of the land, he goes, I noticed this guy, right? If a king notices somebody, what does that mean? That dude's doing something. He's moving the needle, right? He's got riches, he's got power, he's accomplished something. In the world's world, this guy is the man. He's being noticed by the king. And yet, what does he say about him? He's all alone. No family, no friends. He's all alone. He's successful. He's well known, but he's actually not known. People know about him, but he's not actually known. And he goes, this is, this is a bummer. So what happened to this guy? I don't know. Why wouldn't a man have a family? Wife, kids. Maybe neglect, maybe because he worked so much, he forgot about his marriage and that relationship and ignored his kids. And so he just neglects them. That could be it. 
I could see that happening. Could be, he's a hard man. It says this, he doesn't ask himself, why am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? He could be a very hard man. Like his thing is just, when you talk to this man, it could just be work, 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 work. That's all he knows to talk about. He never does anything outside of work. So when you talk with him, it becomes very uninteresting. Like, uh, dude, you talk about the same thing, you and your job all the time. I'm bored of that. Could be that. So he's just driven, one-dimensional, thin guy. He only knows one thing and it's his job. Could be that. Could be that because the world is a dog-eat-dog world, on his climb up the ladder, he squashed a bunch of people. And he's hurt so many relationships with people, now he doesn't have any. Because to him, success was king and people got run over by him, right? So now he's a lonely hermit. That's what he ends up. You can Google a city of men like this. They're all over in our city right now. And this is what I say, work is a thief. It will steal what's most important if you don't look out. That's what happened to this guy. It stole what's most important. And I was very caught on this little phrase that says, he never, he's so, his eyes are so unsatisfied with riches that he never asks, why am I working and depriving myself of pleasure? He's so caught up in the job and the work and the achievement and success or whatever it is, he never stops and like, what am I doing? He never does what Solomon does, like stand back and look, why am I doing this again? He never, he, he can't because he's too one dimensional. His everything is built on work. And now he has nothing that he actually wants. You gotta look out. Work will be a thief, right? I was talking to a guy uh, Wednesday night, big corporate guy. And I said, work is backwards. Like we work hard and then we retire. It should be the other way around. I think you should, uh, at 20, 22, 25, whenever you can, you get married. And for 20 years, while you raise your kids, you don't have a job. You're just investing in your kids, with your kids, loving on your kids. But then at 45, you just start working. And you work, there's no such thing as retirement. You work until you die. Like every single workplace has a morgue where it's just like people are dying. You're just like shoving them in the freezer. Yep, yep, they retired, all right? Because there's like this, there's this fight. Every dad has faced it. Where you want to be with your kids, where Myron's grabbing a hold of my leg as I'm trying to walk out the door to work saying, dad, stay with me, play a game with me. And you can't. I gotta go, bud, sorry. If you don't balance that well, you'll lose what's most important to you, okay? You better balance that well, dads. I'll tell you this, in 13 years, I have talked with a lot of young people, with young ladies, and I've never had a young lady say this to me. My dad hates me. Well, why does your dad hate you? Look outside. He bought me a Yugo. He makes me drive that Yugo. He hates you? Yes, they're extinct. They don't even make that thing anymore. My dad hates me. Never had that conversation. But I can tell you, I sat in a room with a young lady, 16 years old, designer jeans. She drove up in a car. I've never owned a car as nice as that. If I mentioned who it was, you would know, dad, very successful. And she was doing all kinds of stuff to hurt her life and harm her life and just living crazily because she had giant dad issues. Be so careful. As dads, we need to rejoice over our daughters. 
When you tell them that they're lovely and they're beautiful and they're important and they're significant and they matter, that's what a daughter needs. She doesn't need a BMW. They can live in a Yugo, trust me. All right, so we gotta balance that thing. This, it'll be a thief. Work will be a thief if you don't guard against it. Right? And then lastly, he says this. Well, there's a whole bunch, but last that I'll do. Verse four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Right, so we'll look out, work's gonna be a thief. Look out, work is sorrowful and painful. And listen, the core motivation for capitalism and work is envy. Now that could be the envy that says, I wanna keep up with the Joneses. I want a nice car. I want the same car that they have, the same house. You know, it could be that. No doubt there's something in us. When we see our neighbor get the new Tesla, the 2020 version that drives itself, runs on garbage, can fly. You're like, dude, I need one of those, man. Oh, everyone's watching that guy. I want to be watched like him. There can be that, no doubt. But there's something else I think that's attached to work, especially when it comes to men. And it may be this, like work, there's an envy in work that does this, that you go to work, not because you're making a widget or whatever, but work actually is how you define yourself, right? In America, men, when you meet someone for the first time, what do you say to them? Another man. So what do you do? Why do we say that? Because work is so much our definition of what we are. Other countries, it's not that way. It's, hey, what's your nationality? You know, where are you from? What's your tribe? What's your language? What's your family? Because those things define that. But in America, it's, so what do you do? That's how much wrapped up we are in it. So this envy can be this, I go to work because there I find my significance. I actually find who I am. It's not me making something there. It's me finding out my very identity. I'm identified with that job. I am what I do. I get my significance and my contribution and my purpose and everything from my job. It's why Elijah had his money and it wasn't enough just to have money in his pocket. It was, look, I'm valued. I'm worth something. This proves it right here. And we gotta look out for that. We have to guard against it. So how do you guard against that? What do you do? Well, Solomon gives this little bit of wisdom right here. And on Wednesday, when we get to it, we'll cover it. But he says this, verse five, like there's two responses to it. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. One is just, well, I'm out then. I'm out. I'm not gonna do anything then. But the better is verse six. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Find balance is what he's saying. But here's what I wanna do. We've been in Ecclesiastes now for a little bit and it's extremely depressing book. I've got emails from people like, oh, <laughs> I get that. So since we've been in Ecclesiastes for a while, we're gonna go to Jesus today. Just a little Jesus time. Because hopefully you'll get an answer that is the answer to the problem, not just of work, but anything that we begin to put in the wrong spot. So if you can, flip forward to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 10. Where this little story nails the problem of the human heart. Luke 10, verse 38. 
Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me, Miss Bossy Pants. You start telling Jesus what to do, look out. (laughs) But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Okay, so if you look at this story, Martha is a great American. She owns her own house. It's her house. If you know the Bible, her brother Lazarus, who is good friends with Jesus, John chapter 11, and her other sister Mary live with Martha. So Martha is the CEO, great American worker, Protestant work ethic. She's got it, right? But how is she doing? This little text says some things about her. Number one, it says she was distracted with much serving. Her mind's just all distracted because she's serving too much, really. She's overwhelmed by it all. This whole thing is just overwhelming her, how much she has on her plate. So now she's saying, Jesus, tell her to help me. Since I'm overwhelmed, I want you to get my sister to volunteer with me to bail me out. Her mind's all distracted. She's mad. She says to Jesus, you don't care for me. You don't care for me. She looks at her sister, Mary, who's just sitting down enjoying herself. And she's like, get up and get busy. She's like one of those people, like whenever someone's sitting and enjoying themselves, they don't like it. They're like, what's wrong with your legs, man? Why don't you up doing something? If you don't get up, something's gonna be wrong with your legs, all right? She's that lady. You're like, you're just like, ah, right? Who's missing from our story? Lazarus. Lazarus and Jesus are good friends, man. It says in John 11 that Jesus loved Lazarus. They're buddies. Why is he not at this dinner? Because he knows Martha. He's like, what? Oh, dude, I am not going to dinner there. Oh, man, no. Are you busy? Ah, I got something. Mm, I'm reshoeing my camel. That's what I'll be doing. I'm not, that's gonna be drama there. No way, right? He knows it. He's already been through this ringer. He's like, I'm not doing that again. I'm not going there. She's anxious, Jesus says. Martha, you are anxious. She's manic. The word literally means torn in a million pieces. So she's got so much on her plate, she can't possibly do it, and it's just tearing her apart. She's one of those people that is constantly saying, next week I'll be different. Next month I won't do this. Next year we won't have these problems. Martha, you're 45 years old. You're not changing You're doing the same thing. You're gonna be driven by these things. They're still gonna drive you and tear you to pieces and you're not gonna change, no way. And Jesus says, she's troubled. She's upset, she's so upset, she's troubled by this thing that she's now making demands of Jesus. Jesus, you need to do this. You don't care for me. If you did, you'd tell my sister to do these things. I need someone to bail me out. I'm gonna blame shift. If only she was doing the work, I wouldn't have these problems. Sound like the kind of person you wanna live with? Mm-mm. 
No, the truth is this. She had invited Jesus to her house for dinner, right? The truth is Mary had helped her, verse 40 tells us, had helped her up to a point, And then Mary said, it's good enough. I'm sitting down now. But Martha couldn't do that, right? And here's the problem with work. I think it, 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 it does the job of two things in people. And when it does these two jobs, look out. Number one, it can do this. People that overvalue themselves, they look at work as, I'm the only one that can do this. If I don't do this, it won't get done. It's all up to me. And they shoulder the weight of the world and look out. They're gonna tell you they're shouldering the weight of the world. So they overvalue themselves. I have to do this, it's up to me. I think it's why God makes us wait. Because then you realize I'm not in control and I don't shoulder the weight of the world. So people use work to overvalue themselves. But then the other side is this, and I think this is Martha actually, people that undervalue themselves. So for them, they get their value, they get their worth, they get everything based on what they accomplish. And if they don't accomplish something, they feel worthless and valueless. So they're driven by this engine that says, you have to accomplish, you have to get that attaboy, you have to get that approval. It's why it's much serving. Here's what I think Martha was doing. She wanted the party at her house when Jesus came over to be the greatest party ever. She wanted months later when she's walking down the streets of Bethany for people to say, I remember the party at your house when Jesus came over. That was the best party ever. You knocked it out of the park, Martha. And that drove her now. So now she's running around with hors d'oeuvre plates, trying to serve people. She's filling up people's glasses of wine. Wait, this is church. Glasses of grape juice. <laughs> Stirring pots, opening the door, greeting guests, clean up spills, and she's going crazy because she's trying to get her value from what she accomplishes. So what does Jesus say? Verse 42, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Jesus doesn't fall into the trap because Martha thought the problem was people, Mary, or her circumstances, this party. And Jesus says, no, that's not it. That's not your problem at all. Your problem is this. You find salvation and you find fulfillment in work, in throwing this party, in being the CEO, in owning your own business. You find your fulfillment there and now it is driving you. The problem isn't other people. The problem isn't your circumstances. The problem is you. You're taking on too much because you've lost true north. And the moment a man or woman loses what is true north, some other direction will take and captivate our soul and it will drive us and it will require of us, right? Only Jesus is a giver. Every other God is a taker. And when you sign on to that other God, it will take and take and take and take. So you wanna be a provider, good. Can providing get weird? Yeah, we call it workaholics, fully. You wanna be successful, is successful bad? Mm. 
Can success, success drive you and destroy you? Oh my goodness, read biographies of people. Yes. You wanna be a good dad, is that a bad thing? What if it becomes your God thing? Well, we've seen them. Bad things happen when dads say, I'm gonna be the best dad ever. Because either this will happen to you. A, you'll then let your kids run over you. Because you, you want your kids to say to everybody, my dad's the best, man. At night, he feeds me ice cream and chocolate cake. Let's me do whatever I want, right? Their ki- your kids just rule you then. Or the other side is this. You push your kids so hard to be successful that you break them. You ever seen that happen? And I watched that happen when my oldest daughter was three years old, 15 years ago. Myrna Shanifel, swimming lessons. You know, you got all the little three-year-olds. And so there was this little three-year-old boy and he was supposed to jump off the diving board to Myrna Shanifelt, who's in the water. And he wouldn't do it. And so the dad happened to be there that day. And he's like, come on, buddy, you can do it. You, you know, we've practiced this. You can do this. You're all right. And he's, he's going on and on and on. The kid's just like, uh-uh, I'm not doing it. And then the kid starts crying. No, son, don't cry. And then the dad just lost it. He's like, you're a Miller, represent. And everyone just went, oh no, okay. You know, it was just awkward. What was wrong there? Man, his dadness was pushing him and getting to hurt his son, hurt relationships. What Jesus is saying is so key here. Look out, look out. Work's good, but not if it's your God. Success is good, but not if it's your God. Fatherhood's good, motherhood's good, but not if it's your God. Be careful. You have to orient yourself to true north. And when you are, you can enjoy your marriage. You can enjoy work. You can enjoy success because they don't own you anymore. You're full. And here's what the gospel does. The gospel takes care of people that overvalue themselves and takes care of people that undervalue themselves alike, doesn't it? People that overvalue themselves, the gospel says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're all broken, you're all dirt bags. That's the gospel. So if you overvalue yourself, hold on a second, time out. You're broken, you need a savior. But then it also takes care of the people that undervalue themselves. Because those that believe in Jesus, Ephesians 1 says this, you are his inheritance. You are accepted in the beloved. You're adopted into his family. The Bible goes on to say that you are a king or a queen in training. And one day you will rule and reign with King Jesus for eternity. How can you undervalue yourself? What Jesus is saying is this, come back to me. Let me be your savior. Let me give you your identity. And then everything else will work out right. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But we're so fickle. And we can so easily replace Jesus with some other God. And it's very good to step back like this guy would not do in Ecclesiastes chapter four and ask myself the question, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Hold on a second. It's very good. To write down on a list of paper, what's the number one thing in my life that gives me significance? Is it what Jesus Christ says about me? Is it the good news that I've been sanctified, reconciled to my heavenly father and that my adoption will never ever be canceled because it's based on Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. 
Is that where I get my significance? Because if I do, I can enjoy everything else because Jesus is a giver. But if I don't, if something else is my number one significance, it's actually my God. And that God will take and take and take and take and take from you. And you'll end up a lonely hermit. Where do you get your significance? I pray it's from the good news that Jesus Christ loved you and died for you and that you receive the gift of adoption simply by faith in him. And so every Sunday we come up and we take communion. One of the reasons is because we need to be reminded of that. I am valued, not because of what, it, what I do tomorrow from eight to five or what I do when I get home from five to 10. I'm valued because I am part of Jesus Christ's family because he adopted me simply by faith. We eat and drink of that. That's our true north. And then everything else is enjoyable. It's the brilliance and simplicity of Christianity. So Jesus, this day, I ask that you would forgive me because my heart is an idle factory and my eye can be restless finding new things to give me significance and pleasure and joy. Forgive me. May you be my true north. May you and the good news that you brought by your life, death, and resurrection, may it give me my identity and my value. And tomorrow morning, what I do may it be based on that identity. I pray that for each one of us, Lord. For those of us who work too much because we undervalue or overvalue ourselves, may we find that beautiful balance that we work heartily as unto you because you're our king and you're our master and you're our savior. For those of us that value parenting or accomplishment or reputation too highly, Lord, may you balance us by the good news that we have the reputation now that we're spotless, cleansed, pure. Though our sins were like scarlet, now they're white as snow. That's the reputation we have. That we're successful. That we're like the tree planted by the rivers of living water whose leaf never withers. And whatever we do prospers because of you. So reorient hearts this day to true north. And may we enjoy everything else you've given to us. May we eat and drink of that strength, I pray. And I ask these things in your perfect name. Amen.